Do you hear that? It sounds like the air is just sort of leaking out of the ETF hype that we've been going through over the last week. Just sort of, sort of fading. You shared with me a clip of Kathy Wood and a very enthusiastic NBC guest talking about how something else must be going on behind the scenes. Why hasn't Gary moved yet? Why is Gary bringing up FUD like Bitcoin can be manipulated when he literally taught a course on it at MIT where the conclusion was it can't be manipulated. This is a real thing. And if there is attempts by market makers to manipulate Bitcoin price, we're going to see it much more clearly than in traditional opaque markets. Yeah, it was interesting to watch Kathy Wood kind of opine on the on the matter and and agree that there must be some other reason. And then she brought up the old rumor that Gary would like to be Treasury Secretary one day. And so perhaps he's just trying to delay this as long as possible because he's looking at the next job. And I thought this was an open secret because the one persistent narrative around Gary Gensler is that he's a political animal. He's just in it for himself and his career. That's his main motivation. And you can kind of see that from the way that he releases these incredibly cringy SEC videos where Gary Gensler is talking to the camera and explaining how cracking down on stoner cats is such a success for the SEC and the investing public. When I see those videos, I think, how much ego do you have to have to put yourself out there, Gary? Does the SEC not have a marketing or sort of public relations director? Shouldn't they be doing this? Why are you putting your name on this? And I think his political aspirations, his apparent desire to one day be named Treasury Secretary, that seems to be a reasonable explanation. And that also means that approving a spot Bitcoin ETF as SEC chairman puts him contrary to the interests of the U.S. Treasury and managing the dollar standard in general, which is a point we've made a lot on the show. It's not quite saying the quiet part out loud, but when you analyze the motivations, that seems to be the obvious conclusion. And I think the reason why the air is sort of slowly leaking out of the ETF hype is we were in this eight-day window for some reason where there was possible approval window where the SEC could approve the ETFs all at once. When that window closes, that kind of moves us more towards the January 10th window, which an analyst at Bloomberg says we still have a 90% chance of approval by January 10th, 2024. Unless he steps down over the holidays, how does kicking the can cover his butt? It seems like if he's still there in January, then he's going to be the guy at the SEC that approved the Bitcoin spot ETF. Thinking about my own career and having to make necessary decisions that senior leadership did not like, one strategy is to delay as long as possible, over-communicate with your boss or your boss's boss who hates what you're doing and doesn't want to accept that the cost is necessary and there are catastrophic consequences if you don't. And so you entertain every stupid idea, every stupid roadblock, which has kind of been the SEC's strategy. And then when you finally approve it, you give everyone above you in the org a, aw shucks, gee whiz, we had to do it. I did my best, but hey, what are you going to do? Reality. Right. And look, I'm on the record of trying to sort this out as long as possible. Yeah. It gives him some plausible deniability after the fact, I suppose, when he's getting his quote unquote next job interview. I don't really think it's going to create the big disruption that people are so worried about. I don't know. We'll see. I would love to be wrong on this, but a lot of times with this particular type of event, there is a buy on the rumor and then a slow sell on the news as the market just sort of digests the new reality, which is generally not as shiny and incredible as everyone expects. So I'm not like a spot ETF 
bull or a bear either way, but I, I just don't think it's going to have the life-changing impact on the price of Bitcoin that everyone's expecting. It's just going to be yet another financial tool. And I just say that because I look at all the other spot ETFs that exist, like the one in Canada around the world already, and they've not really moved the needle at all. And I understand that the US market's much larger, but I'm just, I don't know. I think I'm just more middle of the road expectations wise. I think what it does change is that if a Bitcoin spot ETF makes it into corporate American 401k retirement plans, then like the rest of financial markets, there's just a constant buy pressure. And so this tends to make the price more sensitive to upside and less sensitive to dumping off. So I think it might be from a pure financial sense, a change in Bitcoin volatility, kind of pushing that volatility more to the upside as opposed to the downside, because every time wage slaves like your Bitcoin dad get their paycheck, there are these automatic deductions that go into 401k and other retirement savings plans. Creating a higher base demand. Like we saw this during this bear market is the DCAers are creating some base demand for the amount of Bitcoin getting created because only so much Bitcoin gets created per day. If you have enough plebs that are stacking that daily, it creates a base floor demand. And this, I guess, would increase that, which is a good thing. So yeah, okay. Wouldn't that actually be the funny thing? Everybody gets so excited. There are all these expectations and what really ends up happening is just more consistent demand, more buying, which just creates a, you know, a new floor price because there's a new floor demand. I think if we look at what happened with the approval of the gold ETFs, which I think was around, I want to say 2010, maybe 2009, the price of gold jumped up to a new level. And then it, it sort of languished. I mean, I think it's been like a pretty okay performing asset, but there was this step change in kind of floor price. And then it sort of hung out. And part of that story has to do with the actual scarcity of gold. What is in these ETFs? Is it real gold? Is it some sort of paper gold derivative? Is it possible to audit the gold supply? And it seems like, no, it's not really possible anymore. So I think we can conclude that the effects of the ETF will be complex. It'll likely result in more Bitcoin going into corporate financial cold storage and never coming out. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. It's hard to tell from where we are now. I would say generally not great for Bitcoin as a freedom technology, but it's an open protocol. You can do what you want with it. Do you, do you have any insights or thoughts on it looks like today as we went started recording one of the bits of feedback that the sec is giving the spot bitcoin etf issuers is that they want cash creations over in-kind creations for etfs meaning the issuer would have to transact in cash instead of using bitcoin directly sec prefers cash because broker dealers can't directly handle bitcoin but they i guess it's seen as a stop a positive step indicating progress in the approval process but interesting development in that you're going to have to use cash you can't sell Bitcoin to buy a Bitcoin ETF. Hadn't really considered it, but it seems the SEC is clarifying that. Interesting. So I guess that means that you give the Bitcoin ETF issuer cash and then they go and buy Bitcoin for you. So in a way, it means it's going to sell more Bitcoin because you can't sell your existing Bitcoin to get into this ETF, right? <laughs> you have to you have to go buy new Bitcoin, <laughs> more Bitcoin. Maybe I'm getting a little more bullish now that I think about it. I have no idea. I mean, I think these financial constructions are quite complex. And given the way they're implemented and architected, it might have various effects that are 
you know, that could be completely opposite. So, you know, you might have a setup where, you know, due to the places that you can send Bitcoin and the lockup and waiting periods, that's very bullish for Bitcoin price, but it also could be the opposite in my view. I mean, maybe some idiots sell their hard asset for cash. Imagine, imagine selling your Bitcoin for cash and then aping into an ETF with that cash. I don't think that's going to be a super common scenario, but you might see some institutional selling. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on November 17th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely back in the old US of A with me. It's Chris. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. On today's show, we're going to touch on consumer inflation moderating in the US. How is that possible as government spending continues to rise? On Twitter, there is a conversation about the problem of Bitcoin. How do you have decentralization when throughput is so limited and there are 300,000 pending transactions in the mempool? Does it even work? We're going to discuss how to handle that in a bull market with a full mempool. Is Lightning the solution? Maybe, maybe not. In privacy, Swan Bitcoin is limiting customers' interaction with privacy services due to a partner policy. They also kind of give clear guidelines on how to avoid that limitation, but it's definitely encroachment on financial privacy in general. FinCEN is also seeking to impose much stricter surveillance requirements into what they define as mixers. We'll get into that. It's absolutely an attack on free speech, the ability to write open source code. It's very vague. It's incredibly reckless and irresponsible rulemaking with very unclear benefit for security, etc. Jameson Locke, who I guess is now an open source journalist, has compiled a GitHub repo. He's had this going for a long time, which tracks physical attacks on Bitcoiners. There was some news uh, that was, I think, not very well documented about alleged attacks on Bitcoiners in Sweden due to their lack of financial privacy for individuals. Something to think about, worry about maybe, we'll see. 810 million Indian citizens have been completely doxxed in a database hack. That is 810 million, or more than twice the population of the U.S just for a little context. So all of this FinCEN surveillance, it's going to go into a database and it is going to be hacked and then we'll get to deal with the fallout as individuals. Human Rights Foundation has put out a global CBDC tracker. It's uh, quite interesting to see how many governments visualized are investigating CBDCs, rolling them out in the US. It details Project Hamilton, which is a, I believe, MIT and Federal Reserve CBDC test project. For a little light schadenfreude, we're going to poke fun at Noriel Rubini, a rabid Bitcoin critic who is now launching his own altcoin. But don't worry, it's green tech and AI powered. Then in Bitcoin education, we're going to introduce an open source website that documents Bitcoin knowledge around opcodes. It's a developer resource, but I think enthusiasts could also read that and, and find interesting information. And then in Bitcoin Optech 277, the episode covers mostly a transaction malleability fix or solution for Lightning Anchor outputs and a piece about Bitcoin Miniscript development and implementation for business. Then we have some boosts. And that's our show. Well, we got good news this week. Put up the mission accomplished banner because U.S. inflation is moderating and uh, everything's good. Feds are going to keep the rates where they're at right now because things are just doing great. And uh, wrap it up, boys. We're close to that 2% inflation again. Problem solved. Or is it? This is an article from Wall Street. 
what you can see is that if you look at the import price index for consumer goods removing automobiles, inflation is ticking down from the 2022 highs. It's uh, it's almost a 35 degree angle down if you kind of draw one on the mark on the chart. You could say, okay, well, maybe the Fed policy is working, higher interest rates are somehow constraining inflation. But the news from Walmart is that basically consumers, regular people are super strapped. They're waiting for sales and deals before they make purchases. And so you see that in durable goods, furniture, things like that, that you can kind of put off a purchase. Those are ticking down. They also reported a drop in just food sales as well, just general food. Was it general food or was it food eaten outside the home? Because it looks like CPI food at home is still on a slight uptrend. Well, both. So just I want to dig into the Walmart one for a moment because I think it's really fascinating not to derail us. So the last quarterly report that Walmart had, they saw a decline in sales. Again, it was food and junk food and things like that. And they ran with the headline that it was because of Ozempic. Ozempic was causing their customers to buy less food. The Walmart stock didn't really take take a beating as a result. Ozempic is this weight loss drug that seems to just short circuit the human brain and make you desire less stuff in general, right? Yeah. You know, I think it's about $500. It's not covered by insurance. And it's a shot that you either get administered by a doctor or you get a kit and self-administer. It's sort of like an insulin shot. It's not a cheap thing. And so I, I never really bought the line that Walmart shoppers were buying less because they were on Ozempic. It seemed like, I don't know, it seemed like a BS story. It also happened to coincide with Ozempic just recently became available in the Walmart pharmacy or something like that. But I thought it seemed odd that that was their attribution for a decline in sales. This quarterly report, the one you just referred to, they couldn't use that as a cover story. And they just came out straight up and said, people can't afford food and some of the basics. And as a result, their stock was destroyed. And it made me realize that the companies that come out and say consumer spending is down first are getting absolutely punished by the stock market. So these companies are coming up with all of these reasons for sales decline that are anything but the consumer can't afford goods. And when Walmart had to finally come out and admit it, they got destroyed in the market. And I just thought that was an interesting cycle that we're in right now. And I think the corollary to this data, which is that consumer CPI seems to be ticking down, especially when you control for food and energy, which is preposterous because food and energy and shelter are the largest spending categories for a regular person's budget. And of course, shelter is still up. Rents are still increasing year on year. Though how much of that is due to sort of actual rents going up and how much is due to this odd adjustment called owner's equivalent rent that is a construction in the CPI we've talked about before that, you know, basically if you kind of add mortgage payments and things into the CPI in a naive way, the CPI becomes a index that tracks mortgage interest rates and it doesn't kind of do any other tracking very well. So it's a hard problem to track consumer price inflation. That said, you can't naively rely on the index to sort of figure out, are we in an inflationary monetary environment or not? And for that, we have the St. Louis Fed. They have a data system called FRED. When I was a student, I used this a lot to look up economic data, and anyone can just log in. We have a link in the show notes. And there is a chart here called monetary base total. And you can calculate the monetary base in many different ways. FRED has a info page that shows how they do it. I don't think that's super important right now, because if you look at this chart, you'll see that the U.S. monetary base climbed very, very slowly 
basically uh, you know, very very low angle, kind of uh, acute angle until 2008, where it gaps up and then it goes on a 45 degree line until today with some volatility. So what does that mean? It means that the U.S. monetary base, the sort of base money, however that's defined, is increasing. And if it's not increasing due to consumer lending or necessarily business lending, it's increasing due to government spending. And we know that U.S. government spending is high, record high budget deficits, record high debt issuance, and that is going into the economy in very specific places. Right now, a lot of that money is going into military spending, specifically around U.S. support for Israel and Ukraine and the conflicts that those nations are engaged in. So CPI can go down, consumer price increases can moderate, especially as people get poorer relatively due to price inflation, but inflation can still rage on. Monetary base will still increase as long as the U.S. government that has the ability to directly and indirectly print money has very large spending commitments. And those spending commitments have not been resolved and so the monetary base and inflation will continue to tick up, in my opinion. And I think that this chart right here is a very bullish case for Bitcoin. Everything else in your portfolio is defined by this monetary base number. It's denominated in dollars, and the number of dollars are clearly increasing. I mean, if you just look at the jump between 2019 and 2021, so that's, you know, it's basically an eight month period, the monetary base increases by, uh, let's say, roughly uh, 45%. Well, we haven't had the government response to the recession that we're in slash entering. So this number is going to go up again, and inflation is going to rage again. And there's nothing other than Bitcoin that isn't denominated in dollars. So if that's not part of someone's savings, I think that would be a big oversight, frankly. Yeah, well put. And I think it's important to remind everybody that if the official CPI number is somewhere around 3%, that's the rate of inflation. If you were to zoom out and say you go back to January 30th of 2020, overall, like aggregated inflation is like 23% still. We're way up on so many goods still. The prices are increasing. They're just increasing slower. But I love the Truflation dashboard. I think they've been nailing it. I've been getting more and more aggressive in my recommendation as I've monitored them over the last year and a half. And I think they really have made an outstanding product out there that helps people truly understand inflation and the overall impact. And they have this new aggregated indicator that's fascinating. But I'll link to uh, the source in the show notes. But if you look at the last year, car insurance in particular is just up like almost 20%. And I, that's something I hear people complaining about on the regular now is how they're getting screwed by car insurance and, and repairs. You know, people are trying to save money by keeping their car, but the cost of car repairs is up about 10%. Services in general are just up. So it's a it's still quite a problem, I think. And it doesn't really matter if the Fed says they're pretty close to their goals and they're starting to pat themselves on the back. And I mean, I saw, I saw Jim Cramer basically spend five minutes on air praising the masterful moves of Jay Powell and how he has orchestrated the softest of the softest landings that was on that was on CNBC yesterday. Oh my God, that is like the biggest recession flag you could get. You know the I know. the reverse Kramer ETF is like one of the best performing ETFs. I don't know why I don't own it. I know, I know. I'm really concerned now. Now that he said that, uh, it makes me pretty concerned. And I'm like, I'm, but meanwhile, I'm sitting here and I'm just feeling it still. I'm just still feeling it every single day. And it's 
uh, yeah, I make, I can't imagine where my mind would be at if I didn't have Bitcoin. And there's a really cool site that I want everybody to check out. One more recommendation. It's pricedinbitcoin21.com. If you go to pricedinbitcoin21.com, it shows you the price of basically everything in the world priced in sats and how it's been doing over time. Like if you look at the US dollar, well, the US dollar is actually up against Bitcoin 3.43% today. But you zoom out over the month, Bitcoin's up 21.85% over the dollar. If you zoom out to the three year, it's 54%. Bitcoin's up 54% over the US dollar. Crude oil, 51%. Gold in one year, 30, 30, 40% basically. The S&P, Bitcoin has outperformed the S&P by 48.27% in the last year. And then they have a denominated in individual currencies like the euro and all the, you know, every fiat you might be interested in. And the situation's even more brutal over there. So when you start pricing these goods, like you mentioned, in sats instead of dollars, the performance of Bitcoin is undeniable. On the day-to-day, every now and then, the dollar has a win, maybe on like the week. But outside of that, Bitcoin dominates oil, gold, S&P, median house prices, and every fiat currency when you actually price them against sats. I mean, there's your clear inflation number. Bitcoin is a ruler to hold up to a world of unfixed value because you can't change the number of Bitcoin. You can't change its emission schedule. Short term, whales can pump and dump. But like you said, the US dollar gets some wins in the short term. But over any reasonable time period, Bitcoin just crushes other assets in preserving value because it was built to do that with modern technology and a clever structure. And legacy finance is still in many ways stuck in the 19th century. The downside, though, is as more people realize this, more activity happens uh, on the blockchain as people decide to try to cram their JPEGs into the blockchain before it gets super expensive to do so Activity goes up and people are starting to complain. Um, I saw somebody on Twitter who's often a bull, often just going on all the time about how great things are, complaining about 300,000 pending transactions earlier today and fees spiking up to $12. And they're right. Uh, I looked, the average transaction fee is up a lot right now. It's up about 700% from a year ago right now. (laughs) So, you know, some people are feeling that. Right. I mean, I'm feeling it because I'm trying to fee bump a transaction and it's not something I do very frequently. It's a real pain in the butt. And as you really, you know, makes me kick myself that I hadn't chosen a more aggressive fee days ago. It's not fun. And I think that the takeaway is that in a high fee environment, you need to think about Bitcoin transactions and how you transact a lot differently because you can have transactions stuck in the mempool. And once a transaction is in the mempool, because there are people like mempool.space that run a gigabyte mempool. So if your local mempool is 300 megabytes and your transaction gets purged out of it and it disappears from your wallet, that transaction could still be sitting in someone else's larger mempool not getting purged. And then it goes through weeks or months later and you're like, whoa, where did my Bitcoin go? If you say tried to cancel it with whoever you're transacting with and pay via another channel or something. So this gets really complicated. And I think that one solution that that people are kind of jumping on is Lightning. But the problem is Lightning also requires on-chain transactions to both set up a channel and then close channels and rebalance channels. So Lightning is not a perfect solution. It sort of mitigates the on-chain fee environment if you have the right Lightning channels set up already. But as we can see today, the time to set up those Lightning channels was a month ago. And that timing is bad because about a month ago, people were panicking about, oh, an 
irreparable flaw in lightning. And I noticed several very large channels just shut down. They just noped out and didn't bother properly closing. And it's still, I've, I've had another large channel shut down recently, just last day. I'm talking like a 5 million plus sat channel just gone now. Now I want to rebalance some of the other channels to try to make up for the missing liquidity. And the fees are redonkulous. So the timing sucks actually for a lot of us lightning node runners because probably other people have been experiencing the same problem I have. People are sort of got freaked out about losing sats and just, just shut their nodes down. And some of us are still kind of repairing from that. Now we're in the situation where the fees are super high and I'm feeling the pinch. And we felt it on the show because someone tried to send in a big boost and it failed because our lightning channels weren't correctly balanced. And, you know, we have to invest time and sats into fixing that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give it, a, I'm going to give it a think over the weekend and kind of come up with a complete solution for the JB node. You know, there are advantages, I suppose, to having hosted lightning systems as well, uh, but I, I want to keep it self-hosted. Yeah. You almost want a failover mechanism. So you try to run it through your own node and then you attempt to route it via an LSP as kind of a secondary. Yeah, that'd be cool. Now, what about privacy? Do you think that we are critical in general of Swan Bitcoin? Because I think they're perceived as a Bitcoin first company that's doing it right. BCA, you can buy but not sell on their platform. They encourage self-custody. So a lot of those things are super positive. At the same time, I think we have correctly critiqued their backend custody solution because they were on Prime Trust. Now they've moved to Fortress Trust. These companies are pretty suspect. And the founder of Prime Trust founded Fortress Trust. And then after he left, it turned out that they'd done a terrible job and lost, you know, over $84 million in funds. So there's new news about Swan changing its privacy policy and stating that they're going to close accounts of people who interact with Bitcoin privacy tools like CoinJoin. What's the overall take? Are we just salty dogs because Swan doesn't sponsor our podcast? (laughs) I mean, I think we're more critical than most in the podcast space, but not as critical as those in the social media space. The problem I think we have really isn't so much with what Swan's trying to accomplish. It's more like the issues that they have to deal with where they're in this kind of weird intermediary spot. The money transmitter license issue means that they're really limited in who they can work with until they solve that problem for themselves. We've seen Strike handle this really well. Not only do they have their own infrastructure like River does, but Strike just this week announced that they're also available globally. Um, I suspect the SWAN team's working on solving this problem, but in the meantime, they are kind of forced to follow the rules that their bank follows. And that is simply now that SWAN customers cannot directly withdraw or deposit from any address that comes from a mixing wallet source. So if you have like a, you know, a Wasabi wallet set up and you're taking your Swan Bitcoin and you're depositing into a Wasabi Wasabi wallet, then I think you can't use that anymore. You'd have to have an, you'd have to go to another wallet and then to your Wasabi wallet now. And that's simply because of their bank provider trying to follow these new FinCEN guidance that aren't even, not law, they're not even policy or regulation. They're asking for input on guidance. And this shows you how permissioned the traditional banking system is. When the banking gods just begin discussing a new policy about blocking an entire customer base before they've even made it policy or rule, they fall all over themselves to implement it. And that's what's happened here. Uh, And if you try to send to like a known mixing address, 
Swan has to terminate your account if they find out about it. And I think this gets back to our previous critical perspective on how they have to operate and the infrastructure that they have to interact with. Because as a traditional financial business that interacts with bank accounts and accepts dollar payments, that means that they are subject to the current financial regulatory environment. This story has sort of fallen off the radar, but we are experiencing Operation Choke Point 2.0. Yeah. These FinCEN yep. guidelines, they're not law, but if you don't follow them, well, you might get an investigation. Well, we might have to look at your banking charter. This is exactly how it started with KYC years ago. It was, hey, we think this is something we should probably do. And a lot of institutions just snapped to it and started doing it. And then the ones that didn't started getting in trouble. And then it took about two years, but we were pretty much KYC'd everywhere. And it it's not like Congress passed a law that said all Bitcoin purchases must be KYC'd. It was the same exact process that we're seeing right now that essentially blocks single Bitcoin address use and mixing services. And these companies voluntarily do it because they the exact incentive you just laid out. And it worked with KYC. I see no reason why it won't work with this. It's already begun. Right. And, and KYC is this, frankly, moral panic that if we don't confirm that everybody's financial transactions aren't doing anything bad, then terrible things will happen. Well, after, what is it, 15 years now of a war on terror in the U.S., We've pretty much established that 99.99999% of financial transactions are just individuals and businesses trying to do right by themselves, and that imposing these broad financial surveillance rules has a huge cost. It disadvantages the poorest people in the world who don't have the money to be worth the time of onboarding into these KYC systems, and they might not even have the documents. It makes my life less good because there are many transactions I have to perform in cash just for various reasons. And every time I go to the bank, I have to answer questions and be treated like a criminal. And one day I'm going to lose my banking because I'm going to say, you know what? I think that question is inappropriate and I don't care to answer it. And they're going to say, okay, well, we're flagging you as a high risk customer and we're closing your account. And that's inevitable I, at this point. I mean, I don't mean to sound too, too bitter about it, but this is the state of things. And, you know, why is there this obsession with KYC? Why is there this belief that if individuals have financial freedom, they're going to do terrible things? I think it gets to this sort of broader social and political and economic issues where the fundamental inequalities of our economic and political models are being exposed in real time faster and faster as communication and technology networks develop and, and more people interact with them. And rather than having difficult and complicated discussions about, you know, how could we improve our politics? How could we improve our economy? How could people, you know, exist at a greater level of flourishing? It's more convenient to go negative, blame the problems on bad actors, terrorists, whoever you want to point the finger at today. And, you know, I think that's the state of things. KYC is a is just a social cost. I don't think there's anything particularly good at it. Sure, you can dig through the data and you can find a couple examples of, okay, well, this person, you know, we tracked them down because of their financial profile and they were a really bad person doing terrible things. These are clearly outliers. Not to rant about this, but it's just, you know, we say KYC, we know your customer, AML, anti-money laundering. We say these words all the time because they constrain us every day. And as we repeat them, I feel like we begin to just accept them. And of course, that's the way that it is. But it doesn't have to be this way. 
way. It's probably not going to change, but I don't think it's right. And I think that at least with Bitcoin, we have a network where there is no native KYC and we can transact as we like. Unfortunately, as you interact with regulated financial businesses, they attempt to enforce these restrictions onto Bitcoin. And I think that they will ultimately be unsuccessful because as the noose of KYC tightens around every participant in the traditional financial system, that system becomes harder to use, more expensive, and less flexible. And we perceive, at least I do, the pace of change in our world to be accelerating. And yet this financial system, which is sort of the nervous system of our world, is ossifying and getting more brittle. So how is that going to work out? Well, things are going to break and we need an alternative system that is flexible enough and non-permissioned. And again, that is Bitcoin. How many yeah. times have we shielded Bitcoin so far well, in this Well, things podcast? will tighten though, right? Like the fin- this, these new fins and uh, guidance on, you know, blocking, as they call it, convertible virtual currency mixing. This is bad news for Monero. It's bad news for coin joiners. Also, it blurs a line between mixing and coin joining. Um, and I think it will become law of the land. And I think it, it it's going to raise questions amongst Bitcoiners who have been mixing or coin joining their stack for a while, if they're going to be able to spend it in the future. Like it raises all these common FUD questions we've had all these years. And it seems like it will become rule of the land. I, I find it extremely problematic. I think there might be a small group that's organizing right now to try to fight this. But the Treasury Department wants this. I just did a little review of the news and I can find stories going back two, three months about the Treasury Department releasing little press releases saying that we need to do something about cryptocurrency mixing as if it's some giant source of fraud and terrorism funding. It's The concept is just absolutely ludicrous. And now, in retrospect, I appreciate how important that piece of crap Wall Street Journal article was that claimed that Hamas was being funded with crypto because it just played so perfectly into all of this. And it was absolutely debunked. The numbers were nowhere near what the article claimed. At the end of the day, you're not going to stop Hamas or other groups that engage in terrorism or that the U.S. government just doesn't like from operating because they're supported by your geopolitical rivals. Those are nation state actors. They have means to transact. I mean, not to sound too pessimistic, but what is the real effect of KYC? It gives yet another yoke for whoever is in control of the government apparatus to silence their opposition and control their citizens. That's the real purpose or the real effect of this regulation and these systems. Well, that's depressing. Let's go uh, create a Bitcoin island and uh, we'll create a circular economy. We just will need one of every type and trade. Maybe no lawyers, though. Sorry, guys. But boost in. Let us know. We need a. We're gonna need a carpenter. We're gonna definitely need a couple of mechanics, some electricians. Uh, gonna need podcasters. Obviously, got to keep everybody in the loop, right, guys? Uh, so yeah, let's uh, go form our circular economy. And I'm opting out. I'm done. Podcasters, but no lawyers. I I wonder about that. The contract in the splits. What else do you need? <laughs> it's right there in the feed. And just as a throwaway, if you need more examples of how a lack of financial privacy can hurt you, Jameson Locke has a GitHub repo that documents cases of Bitcoiners being assaulted and robbed of their Bitcoin. And in particular, there is a case this month from Roninga, Sweden, where a couple was uh, experienced a home invasion and were uh, threatened to uh, extract their Bitcoin private keys. And that was particularly easy in Sweden because the Swedish tax authority, in the interest of preventing tax evasion, publishes very detailed personal information about everyone who pays taxes in Sweden. And on one hand, I think that it makes a lot of sense to 
have a way for citizens to pay the taxes that they owe. If tax enforcement is not done in a fair way, then it's it's an unfair system. You know, why should the poor pay, but the rich not pay? Exactly. I mean, that doesn't seem fair. But the way that this has been implemented in Sweden seems very mm, 19th century. I mean, if this was a book in the library that you could look at, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. But these are online databases that you can scrape using automated tools and come up with lists of people that have assets that you could perhaps physically steal. So again, financial privacy, we need it. And it exists for the wealthy in the traditional financial system because it's possible to individually not own anything other than a claim on a corporate holding company that owns stuff for you. And that level of distance makes it hard to trace assets to individuals. That's how a lot of tax evasion or or all the tax evasion in the world sort of happens today, I think. But that's not available to regular people. And as a result, no financial privacy and thus crap like this. Yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes. I think it's just a great example of why it's just everyone has a right to privacy. doesn't really matter what the reason is. Should we just ignore the 810 million Indian citizens who've had their passport details dumped online? Jeez. Man. <laughs> right. God. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. I mean, when you think about it, like that's like more than everyone in the U.S. It's just wild. Jeez, just the irresponsibility. This is the same government that demonetized uh, whole denominations of currency and so wiped out the savings of like the poorest people in their society because those people saving cash. Yeah, it's pretty harsh. But for a pick-me-up, do you want to check out the Human Rights Foundation's global CBDC tracker? I know this is one of your favorite things, Chris. I do like the UI a lot on this. This is a really cool way to kind of visualize it. Um, and, you know, I I didn't realize there was so many already in production. It's not a ton, but there are a fair amount that are actually launched. And then there's a whole bunch that are in the research phase. Oh, boy. The good news from the U.S. is that there is not yet a launched CBDC, but there is a pilot. Have you heard of Project Hamilton, Chris? Uh, Is this the one that's being run by a couple of uh, universities, I think? That are doing this. And I know they've been running it for a little bit now. It's a partnership with the Federal Reserve and MIT. Uh, MIT. Okay. And so it's a hypothetical central bank digital currency for wide scale general purpose use. And this is different from FedNow because FedNow is more of a white label payments network slash potential CBDC. So that would mean that retail doesn't get to interact directly with the system. They have to go through a financial services provider. And I think that's kind of the more U.S. corporate capture way to do things. Generally, the U.S. government, because of the way lobbying works, tends to roll out systems that benefit corporations. I know you've been talking a lot about the AI licensing rulings, which are you know just you know basically favoring the largest lobbying groups for their AI projects. And why shouldn't our monetary system be the same? The problem, I think, with a retail CBDC like Project Hamilton is that it results in the central bank competing with the private banking sector for customer deposits. And as we've seen this year with several bank runs and failures in the US, banks have a inherent structural problem because deposits are potentially short-term liabilities, but often they, they stick around and are sticky in banks. But there are these tipping points where suddenly everyone gets worried, the deposits disappear, and the bank fails. And because the bank's investments are generally in longer-term securities and loans and mortgages and things like that, there's always a liquidity problem in the traditional banking model. 
I don't think it's going to be solved because why do banks make money? Because they accept the duration risk of their business model. They're being paid for that. So a retail CBDC, it cannibalizes your banking sector. And frankly, the U.S. has one of the most developed or if not the most developed financial services sector in the world. And so there are incumbents with a huge amount to lose. And I just don't see a project like that getting through the wall of lobbying from moneyed Wall Street and financial system participants who do not want the government competing with them at the retail deposits level. Earlier in the show, you teased us about a known Bitcoin skeptic who has launched their own ludicrous AI altcoin. I want to hear about this. Well, I, this is your favorite guy, Noriel Rubini. Oh, yeah. I can, you know, I always have a hard time saying his name, so I just call him Rubes. So Noriel is one of the, how to put it, he's kind of like a traditional economics influencer, a la Ben Bernanke, or mm-hmm. what's that guy? Mm-hmm. Is it Ben Bernanke at the New York Times who has that cringe column, Conscious Not of Bernanke. a Liberal? You're thinking no. of the... No, you're thinking of the, you know, uh, he does work. He also, uh, you know, old uh, Rubes here works for the School of Business at the New York University. He's a Turkish-born Iranian-American economist, consultant, and a writer, according to Wikipedia. He's 65 years old. He comes from Harvard University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Noriel has been just a rabid anti-Bitcoiner, sharing the dumbest, most ill-informed criticism of Bitcoin. He's one of those people who's always predicting the end of Bitcoin. If you go to that website that tracks people who've predicted the end of Bitcoin, he's on there, like all over there. I mean, he, he does it every year. I think he's also called Dr. Doom in some circles because he's predicted 14 out of the last two recessions. This gives you a, a sense of someone who has elite credentials, maybe has done some economic research, which uh, frankly, Pat, I'm not familiar with, that maybe sort of justifies them and then weighs in on a million topics beyond their scope of expertise. Well, he has a hedge fund or investment firm called Atlas Capital, and they are launching a crypto token, the Atlas Climate Token. And essentially, it's going to be a tradable token that uh, represents a basket of U.S. treasuries, gold, real estate and investment trusts. It's just a way of attempting to tokenize and make more fungible, less fungible assets. Things like this have been tried time and time again over history. And it's just amusing because he's such a rabid anti-Bitcoiner, and now he's becoming potentially a shitcoiner. And that's just the power of financial incentives. And it's so funny because like one of his top criticisms of Bitcoin is it's not decentralized, which, okay, he never backs that up. But then would this be more decentralized, your little act token? Is that more decentralized? Of course not. Of course it's not. Uh, So all of a sudden that criticism just doesn't really matter anymore. And, you know, the other funny thing is that he's criticized Bitcoin for being manipulated by a core group of whales. Well, what do you think an altcoin with a pre-mine is? I mean, give me a break. And and again, he never backs up any of his arguments. And some of these are years old. But you could take every criticism he's lobbied incorrectly at Bitcoin. And in most cases, they accurately would describe an altcoin that is being managed by a small group of people with an expectation on a return on investment. And that's just the schadenfreude of financial innovation. (laughs) This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by my podcast network, jupiterbroadcasting.com. Episode 110 of Self-Hosted just went out, and we chat with the man behind the Google Photos killer image. 
brand new update just came out. Big changes in there. We talk about that a little bit. We also get Alex's first impressions of 45 Home Labs' new HL15 lab server. High-end box built for home labbers. And of course, we have Coda Radio and Linux Unplugged, a bunch of other great shows. Well, really those shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I must have really liked that episode with Alex because I looked in my phone and I had the HL15 store page open in like four tabs. But I have to say the pictures really suck because I couldn't figure out, is it rack mounted? Is it a tower? Uh, Like how does it- I should get them to take some pictures. Yeah. It just, I mean, they're clearly home labbers and Linux people because their sense of like design and how to present a thing is just about as good as your Bitcoin dads. (laughs) Now, Chris, have you ever run into the problem where you're writing a custom- Bitcoin script. You're not using Miniscript because you like to stay close to the metal. You don't need too much abstraction. You're just going to write opcodes by hand and then yeah. put large amounts of money into that program. Oh, I try. I try. But, you know, I can never remember the opcodes. I can never remember them. Well, you need opcodesexplain.com. Actually, opcodeexplain.com because it is an open source list of Bitcoin opcodes with some context, examples, linkages you can add to it. And I think this is uh, really going to help you out. And maybe you can unfreeze some of those uh, Bitcoins you you have stuck in unspendable scripts with this. You know, there is something really appealing to be able to interact with your money on the command line, send money, receive money on the command line. I mean, <laughs> it's so awesome, right? Let's see you do that with your US dollar. <laughs> so I was looking through this. There are a bunch of codes that are not yet sort of expanded, but you can look at uh, new opcode proposals in here. This is kind of a more of a primary source, I think, or maybe secondary, very close to the primary. So this could be a a tool if you want to learn more about Bitcoin scripting, or if you're uh, at a point in your Bitcoin career where you're working with uh, scripting at a low level. And the creator of this page also has an incredible product, which I have not yet tried because I didn't want to install another app on my phone. So I have to boot up an old phone, but they have a wallet called Padawan Wallet that is a testnet-only Bitcoin wallet to teach you how to interact with Bitcoin. So I'm going to go through this this weekend, and maybe I will finally know how to use Bitcoin without losing all my money. That's the goal, at least. All right. All right. And uh, you know what? It's pretty nice UI, too. So if you just want to kind of get an idea of what the capabilities are, you can kind of browse through it pretty quick and get a snapshot. So you have, as always, the Optech linked this week, and you seem like you've zeroed in on transaction malleability, which uh, I'm kind of struggling to understand. It sounds like there's a proposal to add a feature that would be kind of a nice thing for lightning operators like ourselves, but kind of opens us up to maybe some kind of fee hijacking from this is where I'm kind of starting to get a little fuzzy on this. So could you break it down? I think it starts with ephemeral anchors. This is a proposal where when you create a lightning channel, you create this zero value output that anyone can spend. And this basically gives you an anchor. It gives you a place to hook so that if you close a lightning channel or it gets force closed and it's not clearing in the mempool, you can make another transaction that grabs this anchor and then spends it with a higher fee. And this would be a way to fee bump a lightning close transaction. So this seems like a really good idea because 
Lightning security requires on two things, cryptographic validation between two Lightning nodes, which we're very confident in and works as long as everyone's online and there's no problem in those in the uh, computer hardware or whatever that uh, would interfere with that. But Lightning security also relies on transactions clearing within a certain period of time. And so in periods like now with a full mempool, if you built your Lightning channels a while ago, well, good on you. But if they force close, you might end up in situations where your channel partner could take back more money than they're owed because your Lightning channel close uh, didn't clear in a full mempool because it was built with fees from a year ago that were much lower. So you solve that with an ephemeral anchor because now if your Lightning close transaction isn't clearing, you just send another transaction that includes that anchor and then a miner has to mine both and that accelerates it. However, the problem is that as you delve deeper and deeper into Bitcoin and how the sausage is made, Bitcoin transactions don't actually work the way you think. And uh, they're kind of scary in that there is malleability. So malleability means that some aspect of the transaction can be changed by the miner or if someone can take the transaction out of the mempool and modify some part of it and then put it back in and it can get mined and the transaction is a little bit different than the way you broadcasted it. And you know, to be honest, I'm not technical enough to talk to you in detail about malleability, but I will point out that SegWit, part of that upgrade was to fix certain malleability problems in Bitcoin, specifically making transaction IDs much less malleable because pre-SegWit, it was possible to broadcast a transaction and then when it got mined, finally something happened and the transaction ID changed and it was possible to sort of lose coins in wallets or for exchanges that were trying to track deposits and withdrawals with transaction ID. This turned out to be a very bad idea and, and a lot of people lost money. And so SegWit solved some of that. However, creating ephemeral anchors that aren't vulnerable to various malleability, malleability problems is also pretty complicated. And you could soft fork a new opcode called optrue into that. You could do a bunch of different things, but it's just kind of an interesting read. I won't claim to fully understand it, but Bitcoin transactions, like most things in computing, are much more terrifying and experimental than we would like to think. The fact that they work most of the time and people generally don't lose money sending Bitcoin around, except in very rare exotic circumstances, is a real testament to how well Bitcoin works, even though it doesn't work exactly the way we think under the hood. No. And right now it feels like it's more expensive than ever. So when a proposal comes along that says, yeah, it's going to take up a little more block space, but it solves this problem. You know, I'm actually like, oh, a little more, a few more bytes. Okay. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> Things are just a little bit different in a high-fee market. It's the high-fee episode, I guess. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, don't forget you can email us at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com, WeaponX at BitcoinDadPod, or join the real-time chat in our Matrix channel. Use something like Element. We have a Bitcoin chat room going all the time. We'll have details and links in the show notes. And this week's baller boost comes from Patar with 250,000 sats. No message, because if you're a baller, do you really need one? You don't have to, no. It's pretty great. I, you know, I use Fountain, too, and so I often see Patar on there uh, spreading the love. He's a he's a big supporter of the podcasting 2.0 ecosystem and, and the shows that take boost. And so it's nice when he shines his love light on us. I feel like we've been recognized. So thank you, Patar. We appreciate that baller boost. Halleck comes in with 10,000 sats. He's also using Fountain, and he writes, Great job describing the coming economic storm, Dad. It definitely needs a name. I've taken to calling it the everything bubble, but I would be interested in other candidates. Great show. I would too. I want other people to boost in their candidates for whatever we're going to call this financial calamity that we're going to soft land our way into, according to... Thank you, Howard. And, and, what's his face? And that's a great idea because we can 
save that title. And then when yeah. we get the next sort of economic shoe to drop, then we use that title and we can yeah, you make a shirt. Yeah. Or make a shirt. Oh boy. I do yeah. love merch. I, I was, I was born in the last 40 years and all I got was this and whatever the name is, you know, this lousy, this, crash. this lousy everything bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Anonymous boosts in 5,000 sats using the podcast index. As an Idahoan and former Idaho National Laboratory employee, I wanted to offer some thoughts on the mention you made of the cancellation of the new scale small modular reactor project. All right. Oh, boy. I think we might be about to get corrected. What is strange is how it seemed to come out of nowhere. The local community was very excited for this project. Countless conferences were held of the benefits it would have. And Idaho State University even started offering courses specifically tailored to operating a new scale reactor. Then new scale declared that costs had ballooned and the project was no longer feasible. At the same time, we should have seen it coming. In a conference this summer, I asked the INL director, Dr. John Wagner, what he saw as the largest hurdle for nuclear. He sighed, looked at me in the eyes, and said cost. Many of the people working in this space have been increasingly worried about the mounting regulatory and construction costs placed on nuclear, and cost reduction has been the central focus of the INL for a while. Regulations and a harsh financial scene have regularly killed nuclear projects, and unfortunately, it happened again. I can't say to what degree renewable subsidies led to this, but I would generally place the blame on the Kafka-esque licensing process. It took NewScale almost 10 years to get approval to even start construction, after which point the situation was bad enough and the investment small enough that it couldn't be done. The U.S. seems to be willing to take its energy future seriously, and that is going to have long-term negative consequences. I think he meant to say the U.S. is unwilling to take its energy mm -hmm. future seriously. It might have been possible to get nuclear up and running before. I'm not certain if we can now. Wow, that's a killer boost. Thank you, Anonymous. And I've also heard that. I've heard that very thing, that they had the funding when they started the process, but then 10 years in, it kind of falls apart. And now you imagine we're in a higher rates environment, a tighter monetary system. Money's a little harder to come by. What a shame. What a shame. Because, you know, this just seems like if the incentives were a little differently and we were putting more subsidies towards nuclear, maybe, maybe then we could see some of these projects take off. But I just look at the next decade and I think our real solution is if we want, if we want EVs and we want electric heat and we want to reduce our use of fossil fuels, then we have to have more energy generation. And we need all types. And I think that renewables probably muddy the conversation because if you're dealing with regulators and you're saying, listen, we need to reduce the licensing requirements to make this easier. And then they say, well, it's easy to do wind and solar and those are popping off. Do we really need to prioritize nuclear? And if they're not enmeshed in a very complicated subject, it's hard for them. Anonymous, if you have a chance or haven't already, I'd be interested in your thoughts on Eric Townsend's Energy Transition Crisis YouTube documentary. We'll include it in the show notes. If you can take a look or, or have some thoughts about that. I, I, I found it really interesting and informative. You know, these are views that Eric has expressed a lot over the years, and he sort of put them together into a documentary. And I think that right now, he sort of has the goal of uh, you know, basically being hired to manage the sovereign wealth fund or, or some large investment fund that really wants to get serious on nuclear and specifically wants a government that's willing to come up with a reasonable licensing regime for modular reactors and basically create a you know a nuclear valley somewhere where they can uh, develop that technology without being disrupted by bureaucracy. So if you had a chance to look into that anonymous and, and felt like sharing your thoughts, that would be really appreciated. Yes, thank you for the great boost. Orange Mart comes in with 5,000 sats, just says thank you. Well, thank you, Orange Mart. Appreciate that. Thank you so much.
We also got a 3,000 sat reoccurring boost from Bob B. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. We had six boosts, and uh, most of them were above the uh, cutoff, and we read all of them, and they all go in the show notes for every episode, too. We stacked 270,200 sats. Not a blow away. We'd love to see it a little bit higher next week, but also still pretty darn good, and we appreciate the support. If you'd like to boost in, there's a couple of great ways. You can try out a new podcast app like Fountain or Podverse or Podfans or Castomatic. Just go to podcastapps.com and pick one that suits your style kind of like a Linux distro. There's probably one just right for you. You might have to try a couple. But the nice thing is you get all the new features. You get like cloud chapters. There's lots of podcasting to shows now that have all kinds of great features. You can go explore a whole new ecosystem of podcasts. You also get the boost button. It's pretty cool. Or you can keep your app, you know, your 1.0 app. Just uh, go get Albi, getalbi.com. Then you can boost from the web browser. We recommend the podcast index. I think you can boost from Fountain and Podverse pages as well. You just top Albi off using anything on the Lightning Network, or it'll actually do on-chain now too. And uh, then you can start boosting from your web browser. And it's a great way to support the show and get your message read. And we appreciate everybody who does so. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on November 17th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely back home after a while with... <laughs> And me, Chris, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.